Right, um, hello everyone, I'm Stephen Monford, I'm chairing this session. Um, I'm speaking of fantastic organisation, can I remind you that next year the joint session is being held at Durham, uh, and you're all going to be very welcome to come to that. Um, so this is the closing session, and uh, you all know the format by now. So it's on powers with Alexander Bird and Barbara Vetter, and I'd like to invite Alexander to start. Great. Thank you very much, Stephen. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here, of course. An extra special pleasure to be able to do this session with Barbara and be chaired by Stephen. And I hope Stephen won't feel constrained by his position as the chair. To, uh, you, just not to say anything, because as you'll see, you some of what I have to say I would, uh, deals with uh, his work. And indeed, indeed, much of it is much influenced by his work and also by, by Barbara's. So, um, our topic for this session is the ontology of properties, and in particular, what sorts of essence properties can have. Uh, brief but important preliminaries. First, we can use the term property in a loose sense, such that more or less any predicate defines a property. Or we can use that term in a more restricted sense, um, so that in the loose sense there is a property of being true, in the restricted sense there is no such property, and it's the job of science to tell us which properties there in fact are. There is a property of being the charge on an electron, for example. Lewis's distinction between abundant and sparse properties is useful here. I take this distinction also to be an ontological one. The sparse properties are ontologically distinct and basic. I hold that they are universals, but a trope theorist uh, may, have, may be able to make accommodate the following. Secondly, there need not be a single answer, just one answer to the question, what is the essence or nature of a property? Perhaps there are subcategories of property with distinct types of essence. After all, some natural kinds, such as gold, have essences that concern the constitution of their members, whereas others, such as ratus ratus, the common black rat, have an essence concerning their member's origin. Particulars, likewise, might be thought to have more than one kind of essence. My own view, as will become clear, is that non-fundamental properties need not have the same sort of essence as fundamental properties. Well, what are the options regarding the natures or essences of properties? Well, the two that are, have been at the centre of debate are as follows. Uh, one, that properties are powers. Uh, in broad term, a power is what it does or can do. I say the powers are properties with dispositional essences, though others may prefer the terminology of identity or nature. The identity or nature of a power concerns how it is related to other properties. Or two, properties are quiddities. A quiddity, by contrast, has no such essence. The identity of a quiddity is primitive, not dependent on its relationship to other properties. One way to get a handle on the difference between these views is to look at their relationship to the laws of nature. If a property is a power, then the way it interacts with other properties is part of its essence, and so is necessary. 
Thus, the laws of nature, in this view, are grounded in the existence of properties. If a property is a quiddity, on the other hand, then its essence provides no such constraint. So the laws of nature are independent of the natures of the properties. Either laws determine how properties interact by some contingent second-order relation of novic necessitation, your Armstrong, or they record contingent patterns of correlation amongst properties, your Lewis. So, a key feature of powers not shared by quiddities is this thing here, modal fixity. Powers are modally fixed properties. They have invariant characters across possible worlds. Note, and I will come back to this later, that a property can be a quiddity and be dispositional. It just won't have that dispositional character essentially. According to David Armstrong, who holds that fundamental properties are quiddities, such a property can be a disposition. But which disposition it is depends on the contingent laws of nature, and so is not essential, and so is not modally fixed. Why should we believe that any properties are powers? Well, there are three reasons. First, they can explain the laws of nature, as I've just indicated. Uh, secondly, the powers theory provides an account of property identity. And thirdly, powers can explain modality, since they are entities with modal essences. They can ground possibility and necessity. So I've used one and two uh, to argue for powers, as have others, including Stephen. The, the heavy lifting to show how the third of these uh, can work has been done by, by Barbara in this uh, very splendid book. I've even got it here, sorry. Um, now, given that powers are backed by good, I think, but will be contentious arguments. Many philosophers have then tried to put powers to work elsewhere. We now have powers accounts of intentionality, of causation, of free will, of moral responsibility even, and so on. Popular amongst many proponents of such powers accounts is pan-dispositionalism, the view that all sparse properties are powers. Those who think that there are lots of powers doing this sort of work, I call powers enthusiasts. <laughs> I use the term enthusiast as in dangerous enthusiast. <laughs> Let us call non-fundamental properties macro properties for short. Powers enthusiasts must endorse the following, the macro powers thesis. Many macro, power, many, many macro properties are powers. And such properties play a role in explaining important phenomena involving macroentities, such as causation, intentionality, and free will. What justification do powers enthusiasts have for macro PT? Very little, I shall argue. Nonetheless, I do not entirely reject macro PT. In fact, I shall later argue that there are some macro powers after all but we just need a new argument for them. 
The macro powers thesis contrasts with this, the fundamental powers thesis, that many fundamental natural properties are powers. Uh, I've mentioned three arguments for powers, one to three. Um, what we should note, important claim here I'm making, that these arguments, these three arguments, really support only the fundamental powers thesis, not the macro powers thesis. So I endorse the fundamental powers thesis, but I'm very skeptical about the macro powers thesis. Why is that? Well, according to the argument one, powers explain the laws of nature. It's sufficient that the fundamental powers establish the fundamental laws of nature. The non-fundamental laws we'll get for free. They supervene on the fundamental ones. Likewise, considering the third argument, what is and what is not possible will be, be fixed by the relations amongst the fundamental properties. One would not expect further possibilities or constraints on possibilities to arise from relations amongst macro properties supervening on the fundamental properties. Argument two provides an argument for powers when the only alternative views of properties are, uh, or property identity uh, is, criticism, is criticism. So we have this. So the argument, the identity argument is an argument for powers if the only other option is the criticistic view, which says that identity is primitive. These are plausible alternatives for fundamental properties. But when we're concerning macro properties, non-fundamental properties, there is at least a third option. Well, the identity of a macro property might be given by its relationship to the more fundamental properties that ground it. So to establish macro, the macro powers thesis, we need further arguments. The current arguments for powers establish only that if they establish anything at all, they establish only that there are fundamental powers. Now, so there are other arguments in the existing literature, uh, explicit and implicit, but I don't think they're really any good. For example, one might think that if a property is grounded in other properties that are powers, then it too will be a power. For this to be the case, it must be that something that is grounded in entities with dispositional essences will itself have a dispositional essence. But that's false. For example, a conjunction is grounded in its conjuncts. A conjunction of dispositions is, however, not typically equivalent to any single disposition. So if there is a property that is equivalent to the conjunction of two powers, that property need not itself have a dispositional essence, and so need not itself be a power. Many in the literature use the terms power and disposition interchangeably. And this invites the inference that because there are many macro dispositions, there are many macro powers. But this usage is at best misleading. For powers are contentious, whereas dispositions are not. Disposition talk is cheap. 
some dispositional terms name abundant, non-sparse, non-ontic properties. I think that the term fragility is like that. But let's say that you think fragility names a sparse property. As I've said already, a property can be dispositional without being essentially dispositional. It's, in my terminology, a mere disposition. So you could hold that fragility denotes a property that is a disposition, but which is not essentially that disposition. Just as the phrase, my favorite German philosopher, denotes a philosopher who is not essentially philosophical, even if she comes close. A related argument found in the literature says that because we can give a dispositional account of many macro uh, of some macro phenomenon or several macro phenomena, that shows that there are macro powers. For example, Brianellis attempts to give a dispositional account of intentionality that is supposed to show the work that powers uh, can do. Uh, Stephen Mumford and uh, Rani Gulbanjo give a dispositional account of macro causation in, in this book. Copy that one too. Very fine it is too, even though I rather disagree with it. Um, um, so, for example, um, uh, these accounts draw on characteristic features of dispositions, such as their directedness. So, Thought is directed towards its object, its intentionality. Uh, fragility is directed towards breaking. Perhaps this directedness is the same thing, yeah. says Brian Ellis. However, what distinguishes the powers from the mere dispositions is modal fixity. That's this thing. That's the key thing that distinguishes powers from mere dispositions. But these dispositional accounts I've been referring to, dispositional accounts of macro phenomena such as intentionality, causation, and so forth, don't draw on modal fixity. So they do not rule out the alternative hypothesis that the properties in question are not powers, but are mere dispositions. So even if we have powers at the fundamental level, we don't have any good arguments showing that there are macro powers as well. I now want to show, give you the argument that fills that gap. Um, this will show that some macro properties are powers. And these are evolved functional powers. So my claim is this. If a sparse macro property exists, in virtue of objects being selected for their dispositional characteristics, then that property is a macro power. My example is sightedness. Sightedness is a product of natural selection. It plays a role in scientific explanation, both as an explanans and as an explanandum. Sightedness obviously explains instances of the behavior of individuals. It explains how animals find food, attract a mate, and escape a predator. For the same reason, sightedness also explains characteristic behaviors and other traits of animal kinds. It explains the structure of the stick insect, whose camouflage allows it to, to escape detection by sighted predators. If the predators were not sighted but used other means of detection, such as smell, 
then there would have been no selective pressure to evolve that distinctive appearance. It also explains the coloration of the non-venomous scarlet king snake, which mimics the appearance, which mimics the appearance of the venomous coral snake on the right in order to deter predation. Differences in visual capacities also <coughs> explain differences in behavioral capacities, why owls can hunt at night, whereas the osprey hunts during the day. That's sightedness as an explanation. Sightedness is also an explanandum. Natural selection clearly explains why many species have sight. Nonetheless, some species are not sighted, such as some moles, as well as the deep-sea lobsters that found Mr. Kelly. Not to mention several other species of sea animals and some flatworms. This, too, can be explained by the fact that such species live in lightless environments. The key feature of sight explained in these, uh, uh, the key feature of sight exploited in these, in, in these explanations is the fact that sight is a capacity to gain information using light. It is this feature that explains the increased fitness of better sighted predators and the increased fitness of better camouflaged prey. It also explains why species that inhabit lightless environments are sightless. Okay. So why all this biology? Well, what I think I've just said um, allows us to say the following about sightedness. Well, clearly it's not a fundamental property, but sightedness playing these roles in explanations, as explananda and explanantia, um, sightedness is a natural property and thus sparse. And finally, sightedness has a dispositional or functional essence. Sight is a property whose essence, whose nature is the capacity to use the light reflected or emitted by objects to gain information about them. An objection to this view is that sightedness is multiply realized. Different kinds of animals have sight in virtue of quite different structures. According to this counterproposal, sight is disjunctive between different kinds of sight, vertebrate sight, arthropod sight, and many others. So in this view, uh, the second claim uh, is, is false, and a fortiori the third is false also. On this view, each type of site is identical to its realizer or causal base, but there's no property of uh, sightedness um, in general. According to the counterproposal, sight is comparable to fragility. Fragility is multiply realizable. Different kinds of objects have fragility in virtue of different structures, different causal bases. For example, consider the following fragile objects. A desiccated leaf and an acicular crystal such as natrolite. Fragility does not provide an explanation of breaking in each beyond the explanation provided by each kind of causal basis, each realizer type. 
Fragility is therefore not a natural sparse property, it's an abundant disposition. So the challenge for the view that the property of having sight is a power is to explain why sightedness has a unity that fragility lacks. The response to this challenge starts by pointing out that although the uh, types of sight in the various families, genera, and species of animals are different, there is a commonality to the explanations involving sight that is lacking from explanations involving fragility. And that commonality is the shared evolutionary story. The reason why the evolutionary story provides an explanatory commonality is that explanations involving natural selection are largely independent of the details of the structures that realize the capacity in question. Selection for function is blind to structure, as Alexander Rosenberg puts it. Consequently, sight and other evolved functional properties transcend their various causal bases. Explanations involving sightedness can encompass different types of realizer. When explaining how the form of the stick insect provides protection against sighted predators, that explanation encompasses both predators with vertebrate sites, such as birds, and predators with arthropod sites, such as spiders. It's a more informative explanation than the conjunction of two explanations referring to the two different realizers of sight. We don't need two different kinds of explanation just to say why the stick insect's structure helps it escape both birds and spiders, even though those animals have quite different kinds of sight. Likewise, uh, explanations um, where sightedness is an explanandum also encompass different types of realizer to provide a more informative explanation than can be provided by referring to the realizers alone. We can ask why both the star-node mole and the Thaumistochelidae lobsters um, are blind, whereas kinds related to these, such as the European mole and the crayfish, respectively, are sighted. To this question, there is a uniform answer. The former, the animals on the, the, uh, the left, uh, have evolved to exploit ecological niches where there is no light and so where no vision is possible. Whereas the latter, the two on the, on the right, uh, inhabit environments where there is light and so where vision is possible. Thus, sight confers no selective advantage on uh, the former, but it does on the latter. Uh, that's a uniform answer that is possible, covering these quite different kinds of sight, sight on uh, realizers of sight on the, on the right-hand side. That's a uniform answer that's possible because the explanation has no need to refer to the specific realizer. But we can't get a similarly informative answer to the question, why are both desiccated leaves and acicular natural-like crystals fragile? whereas bamboo plants and gypsum crystals are not. All one can say in response to the latter question is to explain why the particular structure of the leaves makes them fragile, and why the structure of the natural light crystals makes them fragile, while the structure of the bamboo makes it robust, and the structure of the gypsum crystals makes them robust. So 
and folks had seen off the <coughs> objection that sightedness, that multiple realizability of sightedness makes it a bit like fragility and therefore not a uh, sparse uh, property. Okay, so look, I now want to turn to mental states and capacities. Uh, sightedness is an example of a capacity that is a power. And so how far can we generalize this argument? Well, what I've argued about sightedness is that it has these features, these properties. And that, that's, that's enough something to be a power, to have it be generally sparse and have a dispositional or functional essence. Uh, and it's not fundamental, so it's a macro power. Um, now, can we generalize this to, to other mental properties? How far can we generalize this? Um, well, if other mental properties have these features, um, then, then they too will be, be powers. Um, now, it might be thought an answer to this is straightforward. Um, clearly, mental properties aren't fundamental. Um, the, the evolution of the mind in general gives us that these are natural properties. And one might think that functionalism about the mind gives us the third. Um, but matters aren't so simple. And that's because functionalism in the philosophy of mind does not use the same conception of function as I've been using hitherto. And that's the one that's used in biology. The following familiar example illustrates what I have in mind. The human heart has the following dispositions or capacities to pump blood and to make a faint but audible beating sound. The former is a function of the heart. The latter is not. That is the biological notion of function. It's teleological. In a clear sense, it specifies what the heart is for. The pumping capacity of the heart exists precisely because it enables blood to be pumped around an animal. The beating sound capacity is different. It's not the case that it exists because it enables animals to make a beating sound. It's merely a side effect of the realization of the pumping function in some mechanical structures. The pumping function is thus like sightedness. Um, that function is realized in different ways. Mammals have four-chambered hearts, amphibians have three-chambered hearts, fish have two-chambered hearts, while invertebrates have a range of quite different hearts altogether, a typical example being the tubular hearts of arthropods. We can give a unified explanation of why some animals have an organ with the pumping function realized in some form or other, whereas animals, other animals, the majority in fact, do not have the pumping function at all. The former animals, the ones with the pumping function, are complex animals with organs that need to be supplied with oxygen and nutrients. Very simple animals, such as sponges and single-celled animals, have no organs. The structure of some other relatively simple animals, such as jellyfish and flatworms, allows ox oxygen and nutrients to reach organs by diffusion rather than by pumping. So the pumping capacity, like sightedness, plays a unified role in explanations that transcends any particular realization. And that's because in all these cases, the pumping capacity exists or persists because it contributes to fitness. The same is not true of the beating sound disposition of hearts. If a heart makes a beating sound, that's a side effect of its pumping. 
Two different types of harp may both make a beating sound, but the explanations will differ depending on the details of the mechanics of the particular type of part in question. Philosophers have argued over the correct conception of function. Biology uses a teleological conception. The pumping capacity is a function, but the beating sound capacity is not. Supporters of this view differ about precisely how to analyze this notion of function, but agree that the function of X has something to do with X's or their predecessors' contribution to fitness. Whereas Cummins has argued that there is a broader non-teleological conception of function. On this view, pretty much any dispositional capacity counts as a function. Now, we don't need to adjudicate as to which is the correct account of function. We can say, for our purposes, that there are two conceptions of function available, a teleological one, uh, T function, and a non-teleological or capacity conception of C function. Now, the functions in functionalism about the mind are not teleological. They are C functions. Putnam's functionalism takes its cue from the Turing machine and a non-teleological mathematical notion of function. On this view, the mental is made up of a network of, a ca of causally interacting properties, linked also with behavioral properties. Mental states are identified with nodes in this causal, in this causal network. There is nothing in standard functionalism that tells us that these states persist or arise because of their or their predecessors' contribution to fitness. Standard functionalism, does, therefore, does not give me what I need. Mental states as functional properties in the teleological sense. So. Nonetheless, nonetheless, I think that there are independent reasons for thinking that functionalism should prefer the teleological conception. Okay. So here's one problem for standard functionalism. Mental states are identified with their causal roles, their positions in this causal network. Therefore, if a network has a different structure, then that will be a network of different me mental properties. When humans carry out long division, they get headaches or make mistakes. They also form or maintain beliefs by wishful thinking or confirmation bias. Vulcans, such as Mr. Spock, do not have headaches when carrying out long division, nor do they make mistakes, nor do they engage in wishful thinking or confirmation bias. So a Vul Vulcan mental network has a different structure, causal structure, from a human one. On the face of it, then, we should not attribute the same mental states to Vulcans as to humans, since a human mental state, such as state of belief, does not have the same causal role uh, as a Vulcan one. To solve this problem, we need to pare down the causal connections that identify a mental state. It's not essential to the state of doing long division that it causes headaches. It's not essential to belief that it can be brought about by wishful thinking, um, uh, though plausibly certain connections with desire, intention, and action are essential. We therefore need a principle of discrimination which tells us which properties are essential properties and which are not. Now, a shift from C functions to T functions provides this. But it's, for it's not part of the teleological, biological function of belief that it can be brought about by wishful thinking. That belief can be brought about by wishful thinking is not to be explained by 
any contribution to fitness that such a connection brings. Another problem for standard functionalism concern, concerns the ontology of mental states. What exactly are mental states such that they are identified with a causal role? Well, two options are popular. Um, one is that uh, states are realizer properties. So it's meant to say S is the physical property which realizes some causal role R. The other option is that it's the role property. S is the higher order property of uh, belonging to, to an object of having that has some other physical property which realizes the causal role R. So it's a higher order property that something has in virtue of having some other property that, which realizes the causal role. But both of these are problematic. It's generally thought that mental states are multiply realizable. Different physical states can realize the same mental state. But the realizer proper option on the left uh, doesn't uh, permit this. The second, uh, on the right, the role property option does permit multiple realizability. But is such a higher order property a genuinely causal and so sparse and ontic property? Well, I don't think so. It doesn't look as if the property of possessing some other property that is causal is itself causal. A third option, perhaps a bit wryly in origins, is to think of the mental state properties an ontologically sui generis self-standing dispositional property. The problem here is to find a reason for thinking that there are such properties. Dispositional expressions are easy enough to generate. The famous Brazilian butterfly may, for a fleeting moment, possess the disposition to bring about a tornado in China, should it beat its wings just so. Is that an ontic sparse property? No. So we need a principal reason to think that the mental dispositions we are interested in really are sparse and so ontic. If mental dispositions are just C functions, then there is no such reason. But if they are T functions, produced by natural selection, then we do have such a reason. To recap, I wondered whether there is a general argument for the existence of mental powers. Earlier, I concluded that evolved functional properties, such as those found in biology, are good candidates for being powers. Functionalism in the philosophy of mind doesn't help us, since the standard functionalist takes mental properties to be C functions, whereas my argument leads them to be T functions. Nonetheless, functionalism would itself be strengthened if it did insist that mental properties are T functions. So that improved version of functionalism would support the case for mental powers. So, what picture do we now have of the ontology of powers. I started by saying that there are good arguments for the fundamental properties being powers. That's then that. Other non-fundamental properties may be sparse, ontic properties that are grounded in those fundamental powers. That's then. But they need not be powers also, for their essences may not be dispositional, but may concern the manner of their grounding. When it comes to organisms, the forces of selection are in play. 
These lead to new biological properties that come into existence because organisms and their traits are selected for on the basis of their dispositions. These new functional properties are thus essentially dispositional and so are powers also. So at this level of complexity we find powers again. These may ground further natural properties that are not powers. I conjecture that thinking about the relationship between these new uh, non-fundamental powers and how they are related to the physical properties of things will shed light on emergence since these powers have some of the key features demanded of emergent properties that they are genuinely sparse ontic, they're not fundamental yet not reducible either and in some way dependent on more fundamental properties yet in their own domain independent sources of explanatory power but that's a discussion for another day things 
Um, but somehow, specifically, a view of the world where things are more connected. And whether we locate that connection, well, at least on Alexander's view and sort of on mine and Stevenson in all sorts of various ways, whether we connect things, well, in properties. Um, so it's the properties there are, in the particular fundamental properties, if you go with Alexander, that provide the right kinds of connections between what happens here and there. Now, Alexander, I came up with different labels, but I think uh, it corresponds to yours. Um, Alexander is very much a modest anti-humian. So he thinks the fundamental properties are powers. They're essentially dispositional properties. Uh, but he's very skeptical, as you've just seen and heard, about powers sort of in other, at other levels. Um, and he thinks he has very good reasons for thinking that the fundamental properties are powers, but he thinks that if you don't have a good reason for the non-fundamental properties, then you shouldn't think they're powers. So in a sense, he thinks the burden of proof lies with the person who thinks that something is a power. And the default option would still be Lewis's view. And he's argued at length, and again uh, just now, against uh, immodest anti-humans, or the powers enthusiasts, as he called them, not sure which one's worse, um, who figure, well, you know, we're not bound to humanity, but supervenience as the default, we'll just have powers everywhere. So in trying to exploit his argument for a modest um, anti-humanism that goes a little bit beyond the fundamental level, but only by putting in a lot of work to give you evolved powers, I'm going to try and show that it leads to a very immodest version of anti-humanism after all. Okay. So what are powers on Alexander's definition? They are sparse essentially dispositional properties. And so before I start to talk about the question which powers there are, I want to uh, get clear on the conception of sparseness that we're dealing with here. So sparse properties are supposed to be sort of real properties, uh, as opposed to the abundant properties which, you know, well, aren't very real. Uh, so how do we have to think of that? One well-known question is the question, well, is sparseness something that comes in degrees? Some people say yes, that would be a comparative conception, so you have more and less natural properties, so uh, electric charge is more natural than being green, which is more natural than being blue, so you have kind of hierarchy. And then you have the absolute conception, which is, no, there's just a cut, there's the sparse properties and the abundant properties. It's well known in the literature that you can take either one and define the other in terms of it, uh, but for our purposes and for good reasons, um, we're uh, settling with the absolute conception. So what Alexander is interested in, for reasons that will transpire in question three, um, is a yes or no distinction between sparse and abundant. Second question, a, little le a bit less well known. Are all sparse properties fundamental? There are two ways of responding to that question. Many people, including, say, David Lewis, from whom the terminology comes, say, Something probably, well, I'm not sure about this. Anyway, uh, so many people think, yes, um, the sparse properties are the fundamental properties. Everything else is abundant. The fundamental properties, basically, the stuff you, get, you would get from fundamental physics if you were finished. Jonathan Schaffer, in a paper from 2004, has uh, distinguished this from the so-called scientific conception on which the sparse properties can be drawn from all levels of nature and sort of what we're theorizing from complete science. Schaffer argues for the scientific conception, and I think it's obvious that Alexander is relying on that conception as well, because otherwise his question wouldn't make any sense. Are there any non-fundamental, sparse, essentially dispositional properties? The third question I want to ask is even less known. 
but it's very crucial for the way that paper works. So the way that Alexander's argument works, I'm going to look at that in a little more detail, um, relies on an interesting relation between a property playing a certain explanatory role, in his case in evolution, um, and it's being sparse. So the idea is if something has an explanatory role to play and science is a good guide to that, um, and if it sort of genuinely plays that explanatory role and couldn't be replaced by something else, then it's a sparse property. Now you might ask, what exactly is the relation between this explanatory role? And of course, explanation here is meant metaphysical, um, not epistemic. Um, it's real explanation, something that goes on in the world. So you might ask, what is the relation between this explanatory role on the one hand and being sparse on the other hand? And um, so in particular, you might ask, is that explanatory role constitutive of being sparse, or is it just an indicator? Um, if you said it was constitutive, then you'd hold what I call the explanatory conception of sparseness. Alexander doesn't think that. He holds what I call, in line with his terminology, the ontic conception. He thinks that the distinction between sparse and abundant is the matter of some property playing some role that another property doesn't play. It's a matter of what there is. And in particular, sort of his preferred version is that only sparse properties are universals, whereas abundant properties might be sets of possible individuals or something sort of much more different. And that, of course, is why we need the absolute conception of sparseness, because existence isn't a matter of degree, it's a yes or no. Okay. So given all this clarification, what we want to know, and what Alexander wanted to know again answer to, is this, are some non-fundamental dispositions, sparse properties in the absolute scientific and ontic conception of sparseness. Alexander says yes. I'm going to say yes, but so is pretty much everything else. Okay, here's how it goes. Very condensed um, Alexander's argument is the following. Evolved functional dispositions like sightedness are non-fundamental because they're biological or physical. They're sparse because they have some role to play in scientific explanation. And they're essentially dispositional because they play that role um, in such a way that they can't be replaced by their categorical basis. Right? So the explanatory role, remember the different kinds of moles and other animals. Um, sorry. <laughs> I, my philosophical English is fine, my biological English not so much. Um, so they play these roles in ways, uh, sort of in a unified way that their categorical basis couldn't do it. So here we have um, this role they're playing in scientific explanation. And I think the argument exhibits, given Alexander's conception of sparseness, a basic tension. The basic tension is this. Um, it's not a contradiction, just a tension. Um, being an evolved functional property is a contingent matter. Whether or not evolution worked out in a certain way so that a certain property became, became functional, you know, that's very contingent. Evolution could have gone very differently. Sparseness, on the other hand, understood as the existence of properties, in particular for universals, but pretty much on any view, sparseness on the ontic conception is necessary. See, if we have the explanatory conception, that wouldn't be true. It, this really depends on the ontic conception. Now, that's a tension, not a contradiction, because Alexander was never committed to saying that this is just the same thing. All he's committed to saying is that being an evolved functional property is sufficient for being sparse, not that it's necessary for being sparse. 
But given that it's just a sufficient condition, there might be all sorts of other sufficient conditions, and that's what I'm going to argue. In fact, I will argue that not just the status of actually being an involved, being an evolved functional property is sufficient for being sparse, but possibly at some time in some species being involved in functional property is sufficient for sparseness. And that gives us a lot more sparse dispositions. So we're moving on to my argument, which you find on page two of your handout. I'm going to go through the three things I said possibly at some time in some species. I'm going to go through that in the reverse order. So we're starting with variation across species. So a simple fact about evolution is that some properties have a function in some species, uh, even though they're also possessed in other species where they don't have a function. That's true when you have sort of certain vestigial, well, never mind, we have an example here. It's not that easy to find examples, but that, you'll see that doesn't matter to me. I used to have the example of being able to wiggle one's ears, but people didn't find that convincing, so <laughs> I've changed my example. Um, okay, so take the example of this following. The disposition for one's hair to bristle, I hope that's the right word, when afraid, has an evolutionary function in certain animals such as bull, because they look bigger when that happens, right? So that makes sense. Um, and if you ever get goosebumps when, when you're sort of afraid of something, you know that you're sharing that disposition. But in us, it doesn't have a function. We just, you know, I think so anyway. Okay, so, oh, by the way, the numbering isn't meant to suggest that this is a deductive argument as it stands. It's just to um, uh, enable reference to the different bites. So the disposition for one's hair to bristle when afraid has an evolutionary function in ball. Um, and so, by Alexander's reasoning, that disposition has got to be sparse, step two. Now, as we've just seen, some humans, probably maybe even all humans, share that disposition. And now, it seems to me that if we're sharing a disposition which is sparse in ball, then it's got to be sparse in us as well. Why is that? Well, one of the main jobs for sparse properties is to account for similarity and dissimilarity. The sharing of a sparse property is what, well, is supposed to account for similarity. The non-sharing of a sparse property is to account for dissimilarity. Now, if we were exactly, well, sort of exactly alike in this respect, we're both, both we and Bo are disposed to have this position, we're disposed to have our hair bristle when we're afraid, and it's a sparse property, it's very strange to very hard to see how we could be alike. And there is a sparse property there, but we're not sharing it. Okay, so that's one job description for sparse properties, very typical job description, accounting for similarity and dissimilarity. That seems to force on us the idea that if a property is sparse in one species and another species is alike, then it must be a sparse property in that other species as well. And that is just, um, that's one part of what I've promised to argue. Let's look at the second case, variation across time. Here's an example that actually comes from Alexander's paper. The ability to fly has an evolutionary function in birds. I think there's no arguing about that. And so by our, and I think it's multiply instantiated and all that. Um, so um, the ability to fly is a sparse property of birds, again, by Alexander's lights. Now, um, the interesting thing about evolution is that you need to have a property first in order for it to then be selected for, because if you, if you don't have it, it's not going to help you survive. Uh, but it gets, you know, uh, but it gets its functional role only 
wants it's played a certain role in evolution. So the property must be there before it becomes functional. So in particular, the evolutionary predecessors of birds, wherever they were, um, also had the ability to fly, but it wasn't functional. I mean, if we go back long enough in time, it wasn't functional in them yet. And that, I think, very much like in the first argument, seems to push us into saying that the ability to fly was a sparse property in those evolutionary predecessors of birds already, even though then it didn't have an evolutionary function. Why that? Well, because sparseness, we could just appeal to the similarity-dissimilarity thing. Yeah, well, they're very similar. Um, if it wasn't the same property, how was it the property that has been selected for? Well, we might also say that sparseness is meant to account for the difference between changing and remaining unchanged. That's supposed to be a matter of having the same, having different sparse properties. Um, and I think that is another job description of sparseness that pushes us down this argument. And so generalizing from this case, because nothing really depended on birds here, um, we can say that being an evolved functional property, not just in some species, but also at some time or other, is sufficient for sparseness also in another species and or at another time. Now the crucial part in what I want to argue for is the possibly. So let's think about modality. Let's try the bore again. Uh, given its evolutionary function in bore, the disposition for one's hair to bristle when afraid is a sparse property of humans. That's what I've argued um, in the first bit of the argument. Now we might, uh, so what if there weren't any bore or any other animals in which that property served an evolutionary function. That seems possible. Um, would we then not have that, and we'd still have that disposition, would it then not be sparse? Well, that's very strange, because what my sparse, and in this case probably even intrinsic properties are, can't depend on whether or not there are war or other kinds of animals that um, have this property. So, like number nine, what if, given humans, sparse, and in this case, even intrinsic properties are, cannot depend on the existence or nature of any other species. So, if the disposition, or with hair to bristle and so on, uh, had never played an evolutionary function in ball, given that it is a sparse property of us, it would still have been a sparse property of us, because it can't depend on that. We can play the same game with birds and the evolutionary predecessors, if those evolutionary predecessors had never sort of further evolved into birds, that wouldn't have changed sort of, I mean, that would have been kind of strange, sort of backward-looking change. That couldn't have changed their sparse intrinsic properties. So their ability to fly would still have had to be sparse. Now, the final step is that go back in evolutionary history, consider any juncture where a property could have been, uh, but was not, selected for. So consider any property that could have become a functional property, but didn't. Of course, with respect to that property, we're in exactly the same situation as we were in the hypothetical scenario regarding the evolutionary predecessors of birds. And what we're saying about them, we should say about actuality, so any property that could have become, but did not become an evolved functional property. Um, should be considered sparse. And that's the upshot I wanted to get. Uh, possibly, in some species, or at some time, being an evolved functional property is sufficient for being a sparse property. So that gives us a few more sparse properties, I imagine. Uh, which ones? I don't really know. Um, 
I know much less about uh, any science, in fact, than Alexander does. Um, so that should expand, expand the argument a little bit. Um, I don't know how far. But what it does achieve is it gives us a template for the next part of the argument, which is going to expand much, much further. So my next step concerns artifacts. Here's a quote from Alexander's paper that didn't come up in his talk, but it's in the paper. Uh, he says at the very end, very briefly, a similar point as the one he mentioned about the law of powers will apply to properties of artifacts. Their existence will be a product of their dispositional features, not of the details of the various possible realizers. So are artifactual properties also powers? My argument would suggest that they are, assuming that they're ontic spots. So, you know, chairs have a disposition to support a sitting adult human, and that's why they exist. Why they exist, that's what they were made for. Clothes have a disposition to keep the human body warm and covered, and that is why they exist. Computers have a disposition to perform calculations. Artworks have various dispositions to evoke certain um, reaction responses in observers, and so on and so forth. Um, and in all these cases, that is why these things exist. So there are good reasons for thinking that these dispositions are functional, of course not evolved functional, but designed functional, but the parallel is strong enough to run pretty much the same argument. And just, just to be clear, the um, term function here really does have the ring of a T function, um, as Alexander put it, not a C function. It's not just a disposition. It's, it's the thing exists because it has the disposition. Okay, so what do we do with that? Well, we can go through exactly the same steps again. So that's page three of your handout. It's exactly parallel to page two. So we have the same tension again. Being a design functional property is certainly a very contingent feature. Uh, being sparse shouldn't be such a highly contingent feature. Well, it's just a sufficient condition, but then there will be others. So let's look at variations across kinds. I'm going to be a bit quicker now because I um, assume you will see how the argument works. The disposition to inspire all in human observers has a design function in some artworks. Um, so by Alexander's lights, it must be a sparse property. And that far, given the quote I've just given you, you should agree. Now some natural phenomena have that disposition as well. Think of the st starry sky above us. Um, according to Kant, anyway. Um, I live in a big city, so I never see the starry sky. But, um, but, you know, given that these artworks on the starry sky share a certain disposition, if it's sparse in one, it's going to be sparse in the other. So the starry sky has the disposition to inspire all in human service as a sparse property. Interesting sparse property, isn't it? Um, and again, that's because we want sparse properties to account for similarity and dissimilarity. And the upshot, again, is that being a design functional property in some kind of object or another is enough for sparseness wherever instantiated. Same thing with variation across time. The disposition to support a sitting adult human um, has design function in, uh, is a design function in chairs, so it must be a sparse property of chairs by Alexander's lights. Some rocks before chairs were even invented already had that disposition. Um, so it must have been, we could have done that with the starry sky again, so it must have been sparse property of them, even then, even though it wasn't a design function. Um, and so again, we could appeal to the job of sparse properties in account of similarity, dissimilarity, or for change and non-change. So the upshot, um, again, 
that being a design functional property in some kind, at some time, is sufficient for sparseness in any kind, at any time. And the crucial bit, again, is the modal argument, given that the disposition to inspire all inhuman observers is a sparse property of, um, in artworks, it must be one natural phenomena like the starry sky as well, I could argue for that. Now, what if there had never been any artworks? Would the starry sky still have had that property? Well, if it's sparse, it can't really depend on whether anyone ever that, you know, produces any artworks. It's not exactly an intrinsic property of the starry sky to inspire all human observers. It depends on what humans are like, but it doesn't depend on the fact that there are artworks. So if that disposition had never been a design function of artworks or anything else, the starry sky would still have had it as a sparse property. And we can do the same thing again with chairs and rocks, and I'm going to spare you the details. Um, and once again, go back to any junction in design history where something could have been designed for a certain property, but in fact nothing was. Um, we're in exactly the same situation as I imagined with the starry sky vis-a-vis -vis the never existing artworks, and so we should say that in all these cases there was a sparse property. So possibly being a design functional property in some kind of object or other at some time or other um, is sufficient for sparseness. Now, that may be odd enough in itself. Um, with evolution, it maybe it sort of makes sense because you feel like um, if the property is supposed to play a functional role, it must be on the ontic conception, it must be there in the first place to play this role. That's sort of the ontic conception of sparseness. Sparseness isn't sort of conferred on a property by its explanatory role, but it's its suitability to play an explanatory role in the first place. But, you know, if we just go through the arguments, the same seems to be true with design. Now, I promised you an explosion of Alexander's argument. I'm not sure if that counts as an explosion quite yet, but I'm just going to, so I'm just going to make sure. So, what I've, what, I've pro what I've argued so far is that if a property, any property, P, could have at some time, in some kind of thing, had function, evolved or designed, then that property is sparse whenever and wherever um, and whether or not actually instantiated. So where does that leave us? Uh, well, let's look at Alexander's uh, main example of a disposition that isn't sparse, fragility. Could we have designed things for fragility? We certainly don't, um, but you know, Imagine I won, the, I won the lottery. Uh, I like these positions very much. Um, and so I decide to do something for fragility. I want to make sure it's a sparse property. Uh, so what do I do? I spend all that money I won in the lottery, make that sum as big as you want, buying up all the fragile things I can find. Um, and you know where it's going to, and I set up museums of fragile things, and you know, I advertise it in newspapers. And, you know, just you can see how the story goes on. Uh, if I quit do, doing that for long enough and if the funds don't run out, uh, people are going to design objects for their fragility. As a very contingent matter of fact, but you know, that's the way design history goes. So the answer to our question, are there non-fundamental, sparse, essentially dispositional properties, is yes, but even fragility is one of them. In fact, probably even grew is one of them, you know, just imagine someone who really likes uh, uh, the problem of induction and uh, <laughs> has some weird views on that and so starts buying a guru object. I think the problem here is that people wouldn't understand the advertisements, but... You know, <laughs> 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 a 
apart from that, you can see sort of the same thing happening here as I just imagined with fragility. So our question has been answered, but it's been answered in a way that's not particularly helpful, right? Are some non-fundamental dispositions sparse? Yes, but so are fragility, grueness, and basically anything that we could possibly design objects for. Okay, so something's gone wrong. Um, or maybe not. In fact, uh, so I accept, I mean, you could take that as reductio of Alexander's argument. I don't. Um, I think he's right, and I think I'm right, and what's the conclusion to draw from this? Well, maybe we shouldn't focus on the existence of sparse properties quite so much. Um, so let me very briefly sketch with a broad brush a fresh start. The diagnosis, just, just very quickly, of what happened here is that I think sort of what produced that explosion, there were two ingredients. Uh, one is the optic conception of sparseness, where it's a matter of existence of something like universals, and that seems to be a necessary thing, and the scientific conception where the sparse properties are drawn from all levels of nature or science. If you draw the uh, sparse properties only from physics, then you might be saying, you might have to end up saying something like what Alexander says, fundamental physics is metaphysically necessary. That's okay, but you can't say that for evolutionary biology. Okay, so again, uh, the response I'm suggesting to the argument is not to reject Alexander's original argument, but to just sort of shift the focus from the existence of properties to another feature of anti-Humean metaphysics. Because I think there are two tenets in anti-Humean metaphysics, uh, including Alexander's um, book. So the tenet that he emphasized today was uh, the existence of a certain kind of sparse properties, namely sparse properties that are essentially dispositional. There's another tenet of um, anti-Humean and especially dispositional metaphysics, and that's that it reverses the explanatory order and hierarchy um, that people would um, assume, for instance, in Humean metaphysics. So, whereas for someone like David Lewis or David Armstrong, sort of standard sort of Humean metaphysicians, laws explain dispositions. For someone <coughs> like Alexander, dispositions explain laws. So we have a reversal of explanatory relations, and that's a different. That's a different thing, right? I mean, these two things are connected, but they're two different things. Let's call the kind of dispositionalism that focuses on first an existential dispositionalism. That's what Alexander has been defending. And let's call dispositionalism that focuses on second explanatory dispositionalism. So my suggestion is let's try to be explanatory dispositionalists when we're talking about non-fundamental properties. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to want to sketch this a bit with a few pictures that aren't on your handout. On the Hubian picture, we've got something like this. A disposition depends on, is rounded in, is explained by, supervenes on, whatever your preferred terminology, its categorical basis of solidity <coughs> depends on the molecular makeup of the glass. Uh, but of course, the categorical basis can't go it alone. There needs to be certain modal element added into the mix so you get a disposition. Um, and for, both, for people like Lewis or Armstrong, it's much more complicated, but basically the laws of nature do the trick. Uh, so you take the categorical property of molecules being such and such, add the laws of nature, and you're going to get the fact that if you hit the thing, it breaks. And that's what gives you the disposition, or we could do it with water solubility as well. The Humean picture is unified for the macro, i.e. the non-fundamental, and the fundamental level. So this is true for fragility or water solubility, <coughs> and also for fundamental dispositions that are going to go along with the common pretense that negative charge is a fundamental property. Of course it isn't, but who knows what it is, and so we're just going to stick to this. 
Um, so on the fundamental level, the Humean metaphysician says there's a categorical basis, some quiddity, we don't have any independent access to it, and that is what charges, together with the laws of nature, in this case Coulomb's law, that gives rise to the disposition to repel negatively charged particles, etc. On the anti-Humean picture um, that Alexander, in particular, um, has spelled out in the book that I showed you earlier, um, we just we don't need that categorical basis. It doesn't do any work, so let's just drop it. Um, and what we have is just the disposition, which is identical to negative charge. So that's the fundamental property. That's nothing below it. So that's the thing about property existence, but of course the other thing is that this disposition now explains the laws of nature, and in particular, Coulomb's law. And you know, if you want to know the details, go look at Alexander's book, I can only recommend it. So that's the fundamental level here, that's the structure. What about the macro level? Well, what should we do at the macro level? Should we also just strike out the categorical basis, like we struck out the quiddity in the fundamental case? Well, that doesn't look very promising, and of course Alexander, that's also something that Alexander has strongly argued for. It does seem that the fragility of the glass is to a certain extent explained by the way its molecules are put together. I think all the atoms are you know, something. Um, I, get, I get all my signs from Alexander, actually. Um, okay. So that just seems wrong. We don't want to strike out the categorical basis. It's all there, and it does some explanatory work for the disposition. What's important is that we have an error over there from the disposition to the law of nature. But now we're faced with the problem that the categorical property by itself can't fully explain a disposition. It needs a certain modal oomph added into it. We can't take that from the law. Where do we take it from? Well, the uh, piece of, I don't know, sugar is water-soluble, partly because it's composed of certain kinds of molecules in a certain order. Um, but why do these molecules give rise to solubility? Well, because they themselves have certain dispositions. In fact, it has to do with their charges, which on Alexander's view are already dispositions, and in other cases, it's going to be more complicated. So that seems to me to be the right anti-Humean picture. We've got all the properties in place. We've got the fundamental dispositions. When you put them together, you get categorical properties, and thereby you yield non-fundamental dispositions. When you put things with them together, you get new categorical properties, and thereby you yield new dispositions, and so on. And we still have the reversal of the explanatory hierarchy. It's the things and their properties that explain why the laws are so and so. It's not that the laws explain why the things do what they do. Okay. In conclusion, I think Alexander Bright's argument for modest anti-humanism overgeneralizes. It yields not only evolved and mental powers, but fragility and even grueness and sparse properties. The source of the overgeneralization I want to suggest was the perhaps unstable combination of scientific and ontic conception of sparseness. But that's not too bad for anti-Humean metaphysics, uh, which I suggest should focus not so much on the existence of sparse properties, at least when we come to the non-fundamental level, but on the order of explanation between dispositions, laws, modality, and so on. Um, thank you very much.